Uh, I don't think I've ever done a message uh, on Mother's Day about motherhood. Um, I do remember last year, however, uh, hearing after the sermon, I don't remember what it was on, but uh, one of our moms, who will remain nameless, uh, that I heard indirectly say that, you know, she had really wanted to come and to hear a message on motherhood and was a little disappointed, actually, which I was surprised because it was an amazing message that morning. (laughs) But nonetheless... Uh, she had really wanted to hear something on motherhood, and so I remembered that, and this week, as I actually started preparing uh, to continue through First Peter, uh, I was stopped, I'll trust by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, to remember that comment and to focus on motherhood. And so that's what we'll do this morning, and indeed, I think even start a new tradition. So uh, thank you to that mother who made that comment. So what I want to do this morning is just that, to take just a few moments in a broad way to talk about the idea of motherhood. Of course, that's a a large topic, and with any topic or theme of Scripture, you can spend as much time on it as you want, and you can look at it from from multiple angles. And so I chose one for this morning, which will be more really of a survey of the idea of motherhood. It'll be a, the big idea, the big picture of even as the title of the sermon notes, the preciousness and the dignity or the honor of motherhood. The preciousness or the dignity and honor of motherhood. And so we'll be looking at uh, several different texts. And we'll be looking at this really in four different categories. First is simply a reminder about the grace and the blessing of motherhood as God established it in the creation account. And we'll do that relatively quickly. We'll consider the attacks on motherhood that come in our culture, namely through the influence of feminism. And I'll try not to spend too much time on that. And then we'll look thirdly at the character and the dignity of motherhood and its honor. And then finally at the greatest honor of motherhood, which is Christ himself. So let's begin with the first point. And note God's beautiful design for human flourishing in motherhood. God's beautiful design for human flourishing in motherhood. Everything that God created, he created as good. When he finished his creation and all of his works of bringing everything that has come into existence into existence, he looked and he said, it is very good. And that goodness was not only how it displayed his glory, it was a goodness that he designed in creation itself with all of its wisdom and beauty and holiness to be for our good and for our flourishing. And at the core of that, inherent to that, is the blessing and the gift of motherhood. The blessing and the gift in motherhood. So motherhood is at the core of God's creative activity and blessing to humanity. Let me just remind you, I have a few passages here. In the creation of man on the sixth day, in Genesis 1.27, Moses, the writer of the Torah, the Genesis, says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So man and woman, male and female, both bear the image of God. And by that image are equal in dignity, in honor, in ability, in many ways, and the spiritual capacity to know and to glorify God. They are equal as image bearers. As a matter of fact, this is indicated as well in chapter, verse, chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So man and woman, male and female, are not just accidents of some sort of natural development, as evolution would have us understand or believe. It is, in fact, God's perfect and wise design. In verse 28, Scripture tells us that God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So the ability of women to bring forth children is of the essence of God's creative blessing. Before he makes that statement, he says that God bless them. God bless them. The ability to be fruitful and multiply as a consequence of male and female, to fill the earth, to rule over the earth, was God's blessing. It was his charge and it was his blessing. And inherent to that, 
of course, is the design of a woman to bring forth children. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. The mother of all living things. Now, at one level, why that testimony from Scripture is, in fact, a witness to the faith of Adam, a witness to the promise God had just made, which we'll consider later, but namely that a Savior would come after the fall through a woman. It is also a statement that acknowledges the very essence of femininity in God's creative design. And that is this, that He has given women and women alone the ability to bring forth children. To bring forth children. So God designed women with this particular and unique characteristic. It defines motherhood. And it is imperative to understand it as God's blessing. In order to flourish as human beings. As a culture. As a society. As a family. And the order of creation is not by accident. God in giving women this great privilege. In giving women this great honor. Designed them as well to fulfill it to his glory and again to the good of their own soul, the good of their husband and the good of their children, the good of the culture and the good of the world. And how he describes that creative intention is in Genesis chapter 2. And again, this is just by way of reminder. And the order of creation then is not by accident. Nothing God does is by accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't arbitrary. It was indeed designed to communicate truth. And so he created man and then he created woman out of man. And then he brought that woman to the man. And he did this work so that woman would be to man a helper. And that together as a unit, particularly as the unit of one flesh they would uniquely honor and glorify God on the earth, not least of which was to bring forth children. And so God uniquely designed women to fulfill these two roles, to be a helper to a husband and to be a mother. Those are the ultimate ends of God's design for women. Now, clearly, not every woman is designed. This is a footnote here. Well, is designed, but not in the providence of God. Not every woman will bear children. Not every woman will be a mother. Not every woman will be a wife. As a fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, God, uh, through the Apostle Paul, even places that singleness, and therefore with that childlessness, as a means of how one might glorify God in service to the kingdom. But that being said, and you, in the, aside from these unique cases, the design of women and being female is... For the propagation of the human race, to be a helper to her husband, and to raise children. That is essential to what it means to be a female. Now, in spite of all of God's goodness, there was then the fall which brought in to his good design, his beautiful design, a curse. And the intimate role of Eve within the one flesh relationship, as well as Adam, was first demonstrated... Interestingly and sadly and unfortunately in the fall. And it was namely this, that she wields a powerful influence. The woman wields a powerful influence over man. In this case, it was an influence that led into sin. And a consequence of sin for the woman was distinctly in relation to her role as a wife and mother. In Genesis 3.16, he says this, God does to the woman... I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The consequence of sin hit at the very core of God's design for the woman. Namely, that childbirth, the great honor and dignity of the woman, would be attended now with pain. And the intimate relationship that a wife was to support as a wife would now be attended with enmity, a rejection, a natural sort of bent away from the role for which God has designed her. So physically, then, the curse was pain. This doesn't change the honor and the blessing of it. 
It just means that with that honor that has been assigned to women, there will be the continual reminder as well of sin, of the reality of sin, that we no longer enjoy these in the perfect condition in which God originally designed them and brought them into being. And interestingly, just as a footnote, the idea of pain, the idea of pain in childbirth for a woman is used throughout Scripture. I won't go through all the passages, but it's used throughout Scripture to illustrate, it's used as a metaphor for that time of great destruction that God will bring on the earth. He compares it very often times of destruction to a woman writhing in the pain of childbirth. Even there, reflection that that pain is a result of sin. It is a result, result of a fallen world. And relationally, as I already mentioned, that one flesh unity, joy, happiness is now infected with a sinful abuse of authority by men, but also a sinful resentment of submission by women. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. He's not talking about sexual desire there. He's talking about that desire within the marriage relationship that goes against God's good creative design. So the goodness of God in creation and the design of genders and the role of women as wives and mothers is now affected by the fall. And not only is it infected by the fall, it is also influenced by Satan. The same one who led Eve to eat of the apple and rebel against God is the same one working through his lies to destroy God's gift of motherhood even to our day and even to the very end. So this is, of course, beginning with the bad news. The good news is, is that God created honor, dignity, joy, blessing, human flourishing in the gift of motherhood. The bad news is that that great honor and that great dignity and that great gift has been affected with the reality of sin. With the reality of sin and Satan who wants to destroy what God has created as good. So I won't spend too much time on this because I do want to get to the stuff that's more delightful. But nonetheless, these are things we need to be made aware of and they need to be made mentioned. And they need to be mentioned. And so then the second point is this. That we need to be aware then in our culture that there is an attack against women and against motherhood under the guise of feminism. Under the guise of feminism. Now one of the greatest threats in our time is feminism. This term itself was coined, there's different, there's different people who take it different places, but the term itself was first used in 1837 by a socialist French philosopher. In the broadest sense, the term simply encompasses any movement that advocates for the equality of women politically, economically, or socially. So really anything for women's rights or whatever can fall under the umbrella term of feminism. And now it is certainly true, we would acknowledge, that there are many good practical results that have come out of those efforts. For example, women's right to vote, women's suffrage. For example, protection of women in a variety of ways in culture. Equal pay for the same job and those type of things. However, these advancements came for the most part at the cost, at the very core of what it means to be a woman and to be feminine. The gains that are good that have come about for women were built on the wrong foundation, a defective ideology, and therefore had built into them a self-destruction of the good that God designed for feminine, for femininity, for women, and for motherhood. Now, although within feminism there are a variety of different motivations and goals, even views on gender itself, it's not homogenous in that sense. In other words, there's discussion and disagreement even within feminism. Yet, at the core of feminist theology, particularly as it's represented now in our culture and in our times, there are some basic premises. And two, at the very core of it, are these. One, that there is no distinction between the genders beyond reproductive function. All traditional gender characteristics are merely the product of societal constructs and not an essential element to gender itself. Stated a little more simply, it is to say that girls 
only play with dresses and dolls and boys with trucks and soldiers because society trains them to be that way. It has absolutely nothing within this feminist ideology to do with gender or design. This is why presently if a boy child plays with a doll, they want at the earliest age in some extreme cases to develop these feminine qualities, even dressing him like a girl, giving him gender therapy, and even sexual reconstruction surgery in some cases before they've reached puberty. That's where it leads to see no distinction in the genders. And of course it happens vice versa with with girls. So a basic premise of feminism is that there is no distinction inherent to genders other than what is socially constructed. Number two, is that the second premise, is that tradition and cultural norms have been born out of a patriarchal mindset that values the contribution of men above women. This patriarchal mindset and this ideology says that the oppression and lessening of women throughout The history of the world and in many cultures is one of the greatest evils of mankind that must be destroyed. And there it gets a little trickier because there is an element of truth in that. Certainly the role of man to protect and to serve and to be a servant leader to his wife has been abandoned. And the dominance of males in terms of oppression is indeed ungodly and is sin. And yet they see that. As a product, a great evil that has destroyed femininity. And even within Christian feminism, the Bible is to be read free from all patriarchal hangovers, which they say, again, have led to oppression and the misreading of Scripture. And so then at its very core, feminism attacks the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and the goodness of God in His Word. As a matter of fact... Some, even within religious feminism, that teach at, you know, like Syracuse and Wesleyan universities and so on and so forth, argue in one strand strand, that the great liberator in the Genesis 3 account of the fall is actually Lucifer himself, who was liberating women from the bondage that they had been placed under. These teach in what are so-called religious institutions. And Christians, unfortunately, too often let culture, entertainment, or academia influence our values and worldview more than we do Scripture. One is accurately stated, evangelicals are just... Just, part of, just as the general public is increasingly accepting feminist portrayals of reality and prescriptions for change, even where they contradict not only Scripture, but also their own personal experience and aspirations. There is the idea behind feminism that the God who created life, who displays his wisdom and goodness and creation and all that he has made in his design of male and female, does not know what is good for women and for human flourishing as well as they do. Now, I'm going to do this quickly because I do want to move on. But let me note at least three ways that feminism seeks to destroy motherhood and the beauty of true godly femininity. And I'll go through these as quickly as I can. So three ways that feminism seeks to destroy the goodness of what God has created in motherhood and femininity. First is this. Feminism attacks the home and God's good design for mothers to flourish. It attacks the home and God's good design for mothers to flourish. One, a woman author actually in critique of feminism said this. Though feminism speaks of liberation, self-fulfillment, personal rights, and breaking down barriers, these phrases inevitably mean just the opposite. They inevitably mean just or lead to just the opposite. The lie of feminism is that a woman's true value is outside of the home, not in the home. That a woman's true value is outside of the home. That her energy, her talents, her intellect, and unique design are only for the display that she can complete, compete against men in every way that she's just as capable as they are in terms of intellect and strength and ability in every part of culture. That's, That's the goal. To be stuck in a home is in fact a humiliation within this ideology. The great glory of the woman is to be out into the world 
outside of her home, and her value is to show that she can compete as well as any man. Of course, this is a hopeless pride, driven by the effort to achieve things which will ultimately blow away and never bring the joy that God designed for them in being a mother. And yet it is something that is just an assumed reality in much of our culture. As a matter of fact, that same woman that I quoted earlier says this, much, and I would agree with this, much of the world would agree that being a housekeeper is acceptable as long as you're not caring for your own home. Treating men with attentive devotion would also be right as long as the man is the boss in the office and not your husband. Caring for children would even be deemed heroic service for which presidential awards could be given as long as the children are someone else's and not your own. That is the twisting of feminism. Value can be found outside of the home. It cannot be found inside of the home. And this has brought great, great destruction. And I would just note as a a footnote, ironically, by seeking to show feminine value by competing in what they would say is a patriarchal or man's world, in fact, subtly subverts the very thing that they're trying to accomplish. Because they're showing that those things in the world that would be accomplished by what they say is a man's world is in fact the most valuable and not being in the home. And so in an effort to compete there, they end up destroying both. It's amazing, this one author says just once more, it's amazing that legislators are looking for ways to enable families to send their children to daycare rather than looking for ways to enable mothers to stay at home with their children. Why are they doing that? Because it's almost embarrassing for many in our culture to say, what do you do? I'm a homemaker. What do you do? I serve my husband and I love my children. What a waste of a life, they would say. What an actual waste of your femininity. What a dishonor to womanhood. That's exactly the opposite of what God says. Another way is that feminine attacks women, femininity, and motherhood at its very core in bringing forth life. I mentioned three, but I'm only going to mention two. I said three earlier. Its worst effect is not only how it has devalued women, how it has devalued the home, how it has devalued children. It's gone even further than that and devalued life at its very inception. The most obvious place this is evidenced is in the obsession with the right of abortion. Children are viewed within this ideology as an unfortunate consequence an inconvenience of sexual freedom. It's damaging. And so therefore children are something that need to be discarded of as an unfortunate consequence rather than embraced as the gift of life and the blessing for which God designed them. So motherhood is touted as women's greatest burden than privilege. Listen to one Author, they view their reproductive capacities as the only meaningful difference with men and as the barrier to be overcome for full participation in the male world. Abortion technology makes possible the full emancipation of women from home and male authority. Another later, this is said, abortion is a necessary social requirement for female participation in the marketplace. They have a strong belief that traditional family, along with the idea that mothers and families are the prefer- preferable caretaker so child- for children, is obsolete. One feminist author actually says this, and we'll, this will be the last one. This is fe- feminist author Kristen Luker states it clearly. She says this. Whereas pro-life believe that men and women are inherently different and therefore have different natural roles in life, pro-choice, i.e. those who support abortion, people believe that men and women are substantially equal, by which they mean substantially similar. As a result, they see women's reproductive and family roles not as a natural niche, but as a potential barrier to full equality. Motherhood, so long as it is involuntary, is potentially always a low-status, unrewarding role to which women can be banished at any time. Thus, control over reproduction is essential for women to be able to live up to their full human potential. So, in exact contradiction to God's word, at the core idea 
the ideology of feminism that has as its banner and flag the right to abortion is for woman's human flourishing. For woman's human flourishing. It is a lie that is no different now than it was in the garden. To step outside of God's ways is to bring great consequences. And of course, the the rise of homosexuality and acceptance by culture is the natural step. Gender distinctions, even within sexuality, are obliterated, and therefore homosexuality is seen as just as much a right and just as good as heterosexual marriage. Now, in contrast to that, God has instead given a great dignity to women, a great dignity that is supported and is proclaimed in Scripture. And that great dignity is motherhood. Motherhood is not the burden of female of femininity. It is the great blessing. As a matter of fact, children are repeatedly called the blessing of the Lord. Let me just remind you of this. You know these passages. Let me read them. Uh, Psalm 127. He says in verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Children are the great blessing of God. They are the great honor of women to bring forth children and to be a means of God's blessing to a home, to a family, and to a culture. Psalm 128 says this, blessed, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Who fears the Lord. Children are a great blessing. Mothers, you have a unique ability within God's creative design to bring blessing to your home, to bring blessing to your culture, to your nation, and to your world by bearing children. It is a blessing of God. And yet it's not simply bringing children into the world that is the great glory of motherhood. That's essential to it. We'll, we'll swing back around to that. But it's more than that. It's more than that. The greatest honor and true dignity is to bring forth children and to nurture them as children in the way that God has uniquely designed a woman to do. I mentioned that earlier, that God, in His creative design, has created the gender of female uniquely to fulfill her role as a mother and as a wife. The honor of motherhood, we read it this morning, is climactically stated at the end of Proverbs. Proverbs 31. An excellent wife, who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. So, of course, he's directly referring to a wife there, but the description that follows is a testimony to her care within the home and for her children. And her worth is extolled not only by her husband, but by her children, who do what? Rise up and call her blessed. They bless her because of her care, example, provision for them. They bless her because she is a woman who fears the Lord. She brings honor to their home, to their husband, and to the children themselves. And a woman has a great power to do that. A great power to bring not only the blessing of children, but honor to her home through fearing the Lord and her role as a mother to children. You want an anti-cultural statement that would cause them to rush the stage if certain people were in this room? Uh, it's found in Titus. And yet it is an instruction of God who desires our blessing and our good. He says this in Titus chapter 2. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. What is good? Well, and younger women, that they may encourage them to love their husbands and to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
That is the glory of motherhood. It's to be in a home and to demonstrate as a mother her love for her husband, her love for her children, and the qualities of godliness in her home that will bring honor to her, her husband, and her children. Now, God, again, as I said, has uniquely designed mothers to provide this kind of nurture. And it's a beautiful design of God. Femininity is. As a matter of fact, what, what are these? What are these characteristics? Well, God explains some of these characteristics as a means or a vehicle of describing his own character. Let me read just a few passages to you. You can just follow along. In Isaiah chapter 49, 15, uh, the prophet says this. Isaiah 49, 15. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. An expression of God's great love and care for his people. The great city, Jerusalem, where the center of their worship of the old covenant, the nation of Israel, took place. He describes his compassion for his people as the compassion of a mother who nurses her son, who is the son of her womb. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And God created it to be that way. He says this. In verses 10 through 13. I'll just read all three of those. 10 through 13. He says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast. That you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed You will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Again, God God equates his own care, his own nurturing, his own intimate bond with his people as the one who brought them life and who nurtures them in that life to a mother who has brought forth a child from her womb and sustains it with life from her very own body in the early years. And so God says, such is my care for you, such is my care for your people, even as a mother comforts her son. And Paul says the very same thing. Just to give you a way that Scripture describes this, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 7 through 8, just listen. He's describing his apostolic ministry to the Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica. And he says this. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Paul says the compassion, the care, the concern that he gave to that church was of such a degree that it was like a mother nursing her children. In other words, there was no other greater example out of creation, out of humanity, that Paul could pull from to express his tender care for that church than to say it's like the tender care a mother has for a nursing babe. And God designed it to be that way. And there is beauty in that. Just one more. Jesus said in chapter 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Even within creation, even within creation is spurt. Uh, There is this design of God, of a mother who protects her children, who cares for her children. And this is God's beautiful design of motherhood. And there are unique qualities and ways that that's worked out in the life of a mother that simply isn't in the life of a father. (laughs) One little example of this I thought was interesting, for whatever reason it always sticks in my mind, is Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, 24 and 
particularly in chapter 2, verse 19. If you remember, Hannah was the mother of the prophet Samuel. And after she weaned her child, she took, because she promised that she would do this, she made a vow. She took the child to the temple to be raised in the temple. Of course, Samuel became a great prophet of God. But she says that while he was in the temple, she used to go up year after year with uh, the rest of her family, and she would always bring him something, an item of clothing. And I thought, that's something that a mother would do. That's something that mothers do. There's a special bond between a mother and her child. This is the life she's carried in her womb. I can remember when Trish was pregnant, she used to as all of you mothers can identify with, just love to sit there. She'd want to talk to the baby in her womb and just hold her belly and think of the life that was in there. She thought it was really cool when the hand would go across, you know, and make this sort of indention in her belly. I thought it was weird, personally, (laughs) and never quite got into it. But that just illustrates the difference. There was a bond in that that she was forming that I couldn't yet form. I loved the idea. I knew that that was my child. It was a great joy to me, but it wasn't the same as it was for her. That child wasn't in my belly. I didn't wake up with that baby inside of me. I didn't carry that baby around inside of me all day. I didn't bring that baby forth, thank God. (laughs) Because there wouldn't be three children there if that were the case. As she did, And there's something in all of those things that God designed uniquely for mothers and a way for them to bond with their children. And it's beautiful and it's sweet and it's God's goodness to us. And although it isn't the case for every mother, for example, when a child is adopted or raised who is from another, yet it is the normal experience. And even when it's not, God is designed within the maternal instincts to overcome even this and for that mother to love that child as her own. It's a part of the way that God designed them. Interestingly, in historical theology, early on in the history of the church, the church itself was referred to as the mother that brought forth life and nurtured her children through the teaching of the Word and through the Lord's Supper. Such was the picture of motherhood. And this motherhood is marked by an intense and a sacrificial love and protection for the child, for their children. A mother has an intense love An intense love for her children that is matched by none. You see an example of this in Solomon's life. He wisely understood that. He understood the love that a mother has for a child. And so you remember his first test, as it were, as king and of his wisdom. These two women, they brought a child. Each one of them was claiming it to be their own. And Solomon gives the command and says, I'll tell you what we'll do. I've got an idea. Somebody bring me a sword, we'll cut the child in two, and we'll give half to one and half to the other. One of the mother cries out, says, no, no, don't do that. Give it to the other woman. Who was his mother? The one who was crying out. Why? Because rather than to see that child harmed, Solomon knew that the true mother would do anything and make any sacrifice to protect that child. That's something that a mother has, an intense, intense love. Spurgeon caught this love of a mother when commenting on the Syrophoenician woman. If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 15, she she came to him. She's the one who said that even even the dogs eat the breads under the table when Jesus says that he's not to throw uh, the crumbs out to the Gentiles. Basically, he didn't come for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. But she came to him and she persevered in seeking him. And in this account, the woman bravely approaches Christ, blind to all other concerns except for her child who was demonically tormented. And she would not let him go until she received her request for her poor child. Commenting on this, Spurgeon says this. Lastly, recollect that this mighty woman, this glorious woman is a lesson to every mother. For she was pleading for her little daughter. Maternal instincts makes the weakest strong and the most timid brave. Even among poor beasts and birds, how powerful is a mother's love. Why the poor little robin, which would be frightened at the approach of a footstep, will sit upon its step when the intruder comes near, when her little ones are in danger. A mother's love makes her heroic for her child. And so when you are pleading with God, plead as a mother's love suggests to you. So the Lord shall say to you also, O woman, 
Great is thy faith. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. I leave this last thought with parents as an encouragement to pray. The Lord stir you up for Jesus' sake. End quote. This is the love of the mother. A love that is reflected not only in her earthly care and protection and nurturing tenderness toward her child, but it is a love that is ultimately, climactically displayed in her spiritual concern for her child. That prays for that child. That seeks that child's salvation. In fact, only heaven will reveal how in the mysterious providence of God he designed the salvation of his own in part through the tireless and consistent prayers of the mother. How many wayward children had mothers that spent night after night for them weeping on their knees for God's mercy to their child? And when the child is saved, we can in no part credit under his wise providences the prayer of that mother. The tears of that mother. The heart of that mother for her child. The greatest good that a mother can do for her children is spiritual. Teach them a truth. Plead with them in prayer. Let me make one other point on this. The dignity of motherhood. And it is this. It's to note a mother's greatest power. One of the, a mother's, one of her greatest powers is this. What do you think? It's influence. It's influence. Have you ever thought of that? Influence is one of the greatest dignities and privileges of motherhood. Mothers wield extraordinary influence on their children. And this could be for either good or it can be for bad. We see negative examples even in Scripture. Remember Jacob's mother? She wanted, Jacob was her favorite. She wanted him to receive the blessing. So she encouraged him to lie and to go in to their father and to steal the blessing. From his brother Esau. Adonai. Adonijah. Excuse me. Knowing a mother's influence. Adonijah was another son of David. But not through Bathsheba. But through another wife. Adonijah in 1 Kings wanted to be king. His plot was failed. His plot failed. But later he wants to subvert Solomon's rule. And so what does he do? He knows he attacks the one who has the most influence on Solomon. He doesn't go to his best friend. He doesn't go to anyone else. He goes to his mother, Bathsheba. And he tries to encourage her to give to him Abishag, which was a nurse who was with David in the last of his life. Now his point there was so that he could subvert Solomon's rule by showing that he also had a part in the kingship, as his father David had. But the point here is this, that he went to Solomon's mother. Why? Because the mother had the greatest influence, had Solomon's ear like nobody else had. She had great influence. Positively, however, and this will transition us into the last point. Mothers have a power for great, great good. One of the most uh, memorable or wonderful examples of this is in the life of Timothy. In the life of Timothy. In 2 Timothy... Uh, Paul describes his mother and grandmother in this way. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, speaking to Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. In other words, through his grandmother and through his mother, there was a great heritage of spiritual reality. And this spiritual reality bore great influence on his life. Matter of fact, he says over in chapter 3, he says this, You, however, speaking again to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy's salvation was in large part, in fact here in direct part, through the influence of his mother who knew God and influenced Timothy to the same. And Timothy's father was a Greek, that's mentioned in Acts, and very likely he was a pagan. It wasn't he who influenced Timothy. It wasn't he who enabled him to be Paul's right-hand man, to be such a significant figure in the early church. It was his mother. It was his mother. She wielded great influence on him. 
Now that's the ideal, isn't it? That's what we all hope for. That's what we all want. But the reality is we know that children don't always turn out the way that we want, do they? And so Proverbs also reminds us of this. Let me just read a few to you. Proverbs 10.1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. When children listen to the instruction of their mother, when they follow the wisdom of her teaching, there is joy. When they don't, there is unspeakable grief. Unspeakable grief. Psalm 17, or excuse me, Proverbs 17 says this, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. We could go on. The idea is this, is that while there is great potential for influence of godliness, there's also each mother bears within her heart such a love and intense love for her child that until she sees that Christ is born in them, born in them she travails of soul. She feels the bitterness of their foolishness, of their unbelief, of their waywardness. And yet, even still, as we noted before, the great love of a mother would never forsake her child. The great love of a mother will never forsake praying and diligently seeking what is spiritually good for that child. And there's moms here who need that reminder. Who need that reminder. We don't know what the end of it will be. Right, As long as there is life, there is the hope of salvation. And the mother should use every power, every God-given power at her disposal, namely her influence and her passionate love through prayer for that child to continue to seek that child's child out, to pray for their salvation and do everything they can to influence them for Christ. She has a powerful ability to do that. Now, lastly then, so that mothers have great dignity, great dignity in the characteristics and the design of God. Here's the last point. What is the greatest honor of motherhood? The greatest honor of motherhood. The greatest honor of motherhood is Christ himself. It's Christ himself. Let me note to you one verse, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2... Uh, Paul here is giving an explanation and instruction of the role that men and women are to have within the church in chapter 3. Of course, he's going to give his great instructions on elders, overseers within the church. Before that, he gives instruction on the role of women. And he says in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. He gives an example from Genesis, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was Adam... Not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then in verse 15, he gives this statement. But women, implied, will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. Now, as you can imagine, there are a variety of interpretations of that passage. Some are feasible, some are not. Two general categories of whether it is whether it refers to physical salvation or spiritual salvation in some sense. There are two, however, reasonable understandings of this passage that I think really blend together and complement one another. And that is this. One is to say, how will they be saved? Well, they're not saved through works or bearing of children. That obviously is against everything that Scripture says. He, he doesn't mean that. But he has just given an account of how women fell into dishonor by being deceived and bringing transgression into the world through the influence on her husband. Now, of course, Adam is responsible for that. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Therefore, death spread to all men for all sin, Romans 5.12. But it was Eve's influence on him. I mentioned that earlier in the fall. And so, one understanding is that women will be preserved. The word there translated by preserved in the New American Standard is actually sozo. It's the verb for saved, salvation. Of course, that term has a variety of senses. It can be rescued. It can be delivered. It can be saved from circumstances, danger. Or here, the suggestion is saved from the reputation of having been deceived 
and leading the human race, the leader of the human race, to sin. And therefore that her reputation is preserved in honor through bearing children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. That being the woman, if the women continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Another reasonable and possible explanation is this. Is that the salvation here referred to is in fact spiritual salvation. And matter of fact, he's going to use this term in the same way in verse 16 of chapter 4. He's telling Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so this other then says that salvation here refers to spiritual salvation. And the idea, the big idea, there's a couple different nuances of this. But the big idea of that stream of thinking, interpretation is this. That child through childbearing, the savior of the world was brought into existence. Through the gift of being a mother, the Son of God became incarnate, and through His incarnation, His life, His death, and His resurrection, salvation was brought to the human race. Well, both ideas are true. Which one specifically He means is hard, difficult to come to with certainty. But indeed, both are realities of motherhood have already mentioned Let me focus on one. That motherhood is in fact designed by God to bring the Savior into the world. Remember at the heart of God's promise for salvation in Genesis chapter 3 is this. Genesis 3.15. Speaking to Satan, he says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, Satan will injure This one who is coming, but the one who is coming will destroy Satan. Will destroy him and destroy his works. In other words, the promise is that God's salvation would come through a mother who would give birth to a son. The incarnate son of God. Now in this sense, in this sense... Mary, the mother of Jesus, has a unique place in the line of women. The display, a unique place in the display of the glory of motherhood. And in this sense, she has been called the mother of God. Now, I want to mention that because many of you come out of the Catholic background and you hear that in the wrong sense. The mother of God actually goes into the early church and it was used, in fact, to emphasize the deity of Christ. In fact, that the Christ child whom Mary gave birth to was God. And he was God as equally as he was man. However, as time went on, we obviously won't get into that, that came to take on perverted meanings. And in fact, Mary rose in ascendance until eventually she was without sin and eventually she was the one who was to be the mediator between man and Christ. She's sometimes called the mediatrix. Now, aside from that, however, aside from false doctrine, her honor truly is great for herself and for all mothers. And I want to end on this idea. Although maleness has a unique place in God's creative design as authority and head... Man is also responsible, as I said, for bringing sin into the world. And because of God's own self-revelation and man's unique role, it is crucial that Christ, the Savior, be male. That he was born a son and not a daughter. A son is reflective of his eternal relationship within the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so his birth as a son is absolutely essential. His birth as a male, as a representative of humanity, is absolutely essential. It is not an accident. It is at the very core of his role as Messiah and Savior of man. However, that being said, a human male had nothing to do with the existence of Messiah coming into the world. Maleness had nothing to do with Christ coming into this world. That he was male is essential. But God utterly bypassed man in his coming into the world. The connection point between God, the eternal son, who existed in the form of God as eternal spirit, 
the connection point between God, the eternal son, and the incarnation was the womb of a woman. It was in the womb of Mary, a woman, according to promise, that God became man. He was brought into the world through Mary, the mother of his humanity. So what is the dignity and the honor of motherhood? In terms of God's design for children coming into the world, this is the greatest dignity. Through a woman, Christ came into the world. Through a woman, God became man. In the womb of a woman, the one who would save his people from their sin was brought into existence. The eternal son took on flesh. In his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, motherhood has and finds its unique glory. In Mary giving physical life to Christ, Christ would give eternal life to all who believe in him, to all whom he came to save. Indeed, the male is necessary for the creation of physical life. But in the case of Mary, God did something utterly unique and he bypassed man altogether. Altogether. This is amazing. And this is the true glory of motherhood. And this has many implications, of course, not least of which is how essential it is to understand the child that is in the womb of a mother is a child. It is a life. With every potential glory and ability and experience of a human life that God designed it to have. And even those who may be limited through some effect of the fall are yet born in the image of God. And to be loved and to be protected. But here Mary represents womanhood at its highest degree. There could be no greater dignity and honor for a woman than this, that she is of the gender that brought the Savior into the world for the salvation of man. And so that's a glory not only for Eve, but that's a glory for all of women. And this, of course, is maintained, this honor and dignity, not only by bearing children, but as mentioned earlier, and as indicated there in 1 Timothy 2, it is when this mother brings not only a child into the world, but teaches them about Christ, teaches them about the Savior, influences them towards godliness, models it in her own life, and is instrumental in raising a generation of godly children. This is the great glory and the honor of motherhood. And it is the greatest privilege that could possibly be imagined. Think about it in this way. Man, in terms of redemption, is given the responsibility and indeed the culpability for bringing sin into the world. Woman, though she had her part, has her great role in redemption in bringing the Savior into the world. In bringing Christ into the world. This is the greatest honor of motherhood. This is the greatest honor of of motherhood, And it is a blessing then, though she receives the honor that we all participate in, for he was the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of all who will call upon his name for forgiveness. Now let me make one final word here, quickly. What about women who are single or cannot have children? Well, let me just note as well that motherhood is only one metaphor for Christians. The bride of Christ is even more prominent than that. Secondly, that all those God's wise and mysterious providence may not have given you children and the experience of motherhood, you are of the gender through which life is brought into the world and the Savior was born, and therefore by being woman you share in that honor and glory. And thirdly, you still bear the qualities of motherhood by virtue of your femininity, compassion, and tenderness, which are employed in so many other ways. The point is, is it's a great honor. Do not ever be ashamed Ever be ashamed of being a woman who honors God by caring for her family and for her home. And understand the great influence and the power that you have as a mother to influence your children for Christ and for the next generation. And persevere and do not grow weary. Let me pray and then we'll sing a concluding hymn. Father, thank you for the gift of mothers. 
Help us to understand the great honor and dignity that you have designed for women. And for our mothers who are here, will you fill them with a sense of that great dignity and honor? Will you bless them? As we prayed earlier, will you encourage them when they grow weary? Will you stir up in them faith and hope when they might be losing it? Particularly those with grown children who at this point are yet gone astray. Would you keep them faithful? Would you keep them praying? For those with young children, help them to see that the fruit of their labors are not in vain. From the very beginning of life and bringing their child into this world, they wield a great influence upon them for Christ. For those with older children who are yet in the home, will you encourage them to persevere in prayer, to not grow weary, to not lose heart, but continue to seek to be an example and an influence for Christ in their home until they see Christ formed in each of their children, trusting you in all things. And help us to support our mothers and our wives in the task that you have given them, to encourage them, to pray for them, and to honor them with the honor that you have bestowed on them. And all of these things we ask that you enable us to do by your grace in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll sing.